Welcome to the Captain's Podcast. I'm Elena Copley. My guest today is Dr. Shana Glover. She is the co-founder and CEO of Invelo, a high-caliber advisory firm specializing in advising businesses across a range of industries and commercial sectors on the automation of supply chains, the adoption of artificial intelligence and robotics. Shana is also an experienced executive leader with a 20-year track record of successfully leading step-change technology programs. Most recently, Shana was the program director of BHP's Autonomous Operation Program, which is developing the next generation in robotics and precision resource extraction for the mining industry. Shana managed a global team and a demonstration testbed in Arizona in the US. Impressively, Shana holds a first-class double degree in chemical engineering and science, as well as a PhD in engineering. She holds a range of board positions, including as a board member of the Robotics Australia Group, an industry advisory member of Australia's Space Agency, an advisory board member of SmartSat CRC, and an advisory board member of the Queensland Robotics Cluster. Beyond her exceptional commercial experience and science-based technical skills, you will hear Shana's dedication to establishing and implementing genuine opportunities to advance women in business. As she is also an ambassador for Opportunity International Australia, you will also hear of her passion to economically empower women through microfinance loans that provide transformational life changes to give a sustainable hand up out of extreme poverty. Shana and I warmly invite you to become involved in the initiatives for which we lay the foundations during our discussion, the first of which will be held in late October or early November this year. As always, While you're listening to this podcast, simply ask yourself one question. What will be your life legacy? Yeah, I had an interesting journey in BHP, Elena. I um, 20-year career working in innovation in BHP, um, a chemical engineer originally by study. So I had the opportunity to, in the end, lead BHP's automated uh, program, essentially leading a, a testbed trial in Arizona. So, you know, just goes to show the opportunity that arises from, you know, from the study of STEM. Yeah, so I think there's always a focus on automation and robotics around, you know, it's all about, you know, taking people away. Um, There is a great safety benefit from taking people out of the line of fire. People and machinery don't mix. But the other great benefit that comes from automation or any form of robotics is precision. You know, so doing work that's, you know, transactional, you know, allows, robotics allows it to be much more precise, you know, which can obviously with human error become, you know, essentially quite (laughs) non-precise. Yeah, I think for me, I'm, I'm a real people person and a real partnership style approach to, to the way we deliver things. So I was most proud of the uh, ecosystem approach and the partners that we pulled from all across the globe to actually contribute to the, to the automated program we were running. Um, and how did you do that? <laughs> I, I mean, I think I've um, 
early in my career, I certainly had been asked to make the tea or coffee a couple of times. Um, so in 20 years, we've certainly come a long way. I don't see, I haven't been asked that, thankfully, over the last decade. But certainly, I often still find I can hop into uh, forums, you know, big, large meetings that are, are all male um, and, and have um, some people in the room certainly struggle a little more on engaging, you know, directly with a, a female leader. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, um, delivery, you know, is the is the approach I always use, which is you know to to prove you know through your successes and your delivery that you actually you know I, I lead through content and and success really, and and you sort of can't you can't um, make people change their their views, but re really I find people do start to when they see you know that you, you know your different style and they start to appreciate that diversity of, of of leadership you know I find they generally start to um to come on board yeah I, I've had some um fantastic puller uppers both um male and female um you know people like Michael Rosengren um, Megan Clark these are people who um, certainly give you the the space to uh, experiment. Um, you know, they bring you in on decision-making, uh, you know, give you perspectives and insights of their leadership style, um, you know, and allow you to make that kind of trial and error in, in your own role and just give you all the support as well as extending their their um their mentors and their sponsors to you. They effectively do, as you said, pull you up that ladder. Yeah, well, it's, you know, I've always, um, I suppose, gained the most from those leaders that you know, I talk about a leadership shadow, you know, and those who have a, a strong leadership shadow are those ones who actually do, as you said, um, you know, the way they lead. Um, I'm a big fan of um, Brene Brown. So those who lead through humility and authenticity, um, to me, that is a wonderful leadership shadow and, and they cast that and, you know, and that's come through hopefully in, in my style and then as I mentor and sponsor, you know, other people, you know, I hope to pass, you know, pass those traits on because I think they are, you know, they're my most two favourite qualities. Frankly, if you have nothing else as a leader, if you've got those two, I think you'll be successful. Given your exceptional knowledge and experience earlier this year or late last year, you set up your own consultancy in Bellow with a colleague. What's the focus of your work through it? Yeah, so um, together with Alan Bai, um, we set up Invelo in the middle of 2019 and it's a company that is um, really focused on how do we automate um, and digitally lift the value chain. So if you think of mining, it's you know the resource through the mining and the processing and through the supply chain and really industry 4.0 is really not so much about this, the bespoke technologies, but it's about how they integrate and how you transform your business through that. So Invelo is a company that um, not only consults, but we also help you then with the execution, you know, of your business transformation through innovation. And what, and what industries are you predominantly working? 
Yeah, we um, I mean, we have obviously a, a strong history of mining, but equally, we're doing quite a lot of work now in uh, forestry, uh, agriculture, as well as uh, oil and gas and space. So, uh, so yeah, and that's really the sign of how technology has. Uh, brought the industries together in a way that I've never seen in my career, uh, as is the case today. I want to come back to this space because I think that's absolutely fascinating for Australia and your involvement in it. But could you just break down and explain with the fourth industrial revolution, what that means, what it means to Australia, and how does AI benefit or impact on supply chains? Yeah, so, you know, Industry 4.0 is a range of technologies, robotics, um, Internet of Things, uh, AI, so artificial intelligence, machine learning. There's half a dozen technologies which, you know, are are some of the most game changers in Industry 4.0. And I think when it comes to artificial intelligence, um, you know, and, and Australia's opportunity, it really is in, you know, the how we use robotics and, you know, AI, which is obviously a component of robotics, how we build that technology industry off the back of uh, our, our big GDP industries like mining and agriculture. And so more specifically, how does that translate into the forestry industry? Yeah, so um, forestry and, and, and mining, all these industries in agriculture, it actually is about um, heterogeneity, which is a word for you know, variance in, in the resource. And so they have a lot of similarity in that um, in real time now we can understand a lot more about that resource. And so forestry, we can understand a lot more in real time about um, a tree as we're um, cutting it down in a plantation and how do we link that information right through to the mill so that we maximise what we can actually obtain out of that tree in terms of you know things like structural timber. So part of it is the optimization of the collation of data and not for it to go and sit in old Trevor's bottom drawer, but to actually get a value from it. Exactly. It's how do you start to take that that data and integrate it so that you can make better decisions, um, hopefully, you know, automated. But I think it's as much about people, you know, um, at the moment, our people are swamped with data. They don't want data, they want insights. Nothing will ever replace that how wonderful people are at um coping with ambiguity and making decisions in light of you know complexity but they need insights from that data and then they can focus on you know on the decision making so back in the day people were able to fly planes and they were able to land and still land safely with rudimentary instruments but there was always that element of danger that today is unnecessary and so by giving greater access to insights as you say and to the collation of data from the instruments, then it makes it a far more efficient and effective and safe operation in flying a plane and landing safely. Exactly. And and I think we've seen in um, flight, as you said, you know, that that journey has been more advanced, whereas a lot of our industries like mining and agriculture, we've we're a little bit behind in that in that journey, and so um, we're not using the information and the data to really drive you know drive that productivity that you know that we should be getting out of these wonderful resources we have in Australia. And you're a, and you're a passionate supporter of robotics, and moreover, the development of robotics and AI industry as a whole in Australia. What do you think Australia can achieve? 
Yeah, Australia, Lena, is in such a, a wonderful position due to our agriculture and our, and our mining, and these industries are are huge, and you know they're going to actually grow as as the world requires. You know, obviously, its own growth out of developing countries. It relies on our our resources, both commodities and agriculture. So, um, but what Australia can really benefit from is if it develops and and a technology industry on the back of those you know agriculture and mining uh, industries that we have today and I and I think we we haven't been so good at that we're very good at you know pulling things out of the ground or growing things and and exporting it but you know if you take a sort of more Silicon Valley approach how do we actually have a really amazing technology industry that's grown on the back of those industries so breaking that down, what are the, say, top three major challenges? Is it recognition to start? Yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly we built, uh, established a group called Robotics Australia Group, um, you know, early, early this year, which is a not-for-profit group. And, and its accountability is, you know, really that um, peak body for robotics in Australia. And, and to your point, the reason we established that is these industries um, don't exist today. You know, technology is a very fragmented place in Australia. Robotics is a very fragmented industry. So the first thing we need to do is actually understand who we've got out there. We've got some amazing companies today. What does that capability look like today and how can we actually advocate for it, create better visibility and grow it? And what impact do you think closing our borders has for more of an inward focus to grow what we have here? Yeah, I think, um, you know, out of some of these challenges like the pandemic, I think we have thought a lot more as a country around our sovereign capability and supply chain security. So certainly robotics uh, or, or many of these technologies we're talking about, Australia has a great opportunity to actually build our capability so that our we're not um, fully reliant on overseas technologies that frankly, are becoming much more important to the way that we run, you know, our operations in, in you know, bed ag or forestry or mining. So it is, it is important. It's not to say that we're going to build and develop everything here. That, that would be uh, lunacy. Uh, we, we will not uh, have the capability for that. But really understanding those things that, you know, we can have competitive advantage and actually make sure our operations can, you know, be always productive because there will be no doubt other you know pandemics in the future so how do we keep you know keep running those operations when there is a lot more technology within them what is happening in australia in terms of the space and space exploration and expanding the space industry yes so um a little bit akin to the conversation we were having on robotics, the space work that australia has been doing over the last few years started in the same area where uh, there was a lot of work done to understand the capabilities Australia had in space. It was very fragmented, but yet we we did some amazing work or always have done. So the Australian Space Agency was formed. But what I think is so wonderful about the work that's going on um, with the, the Space Agency is I call it, yeah, Earth to space, space to Earth. So how do we use capabilities here on Earth to benefit, you know, obviously the space program and the global space, you know, space efforts, but also things that are happening in space, how can they accelerate the improvement and productivity of our Australian industries? Um, And to give you a tangible example, it's things like connectivity. 
So obviously um, satellite communications is something that, you know, is is front and centre for the work of the space agency for their program, but can really benefit our, um, our rural industries like mining and agriculture, which suffer today with poor connectivity. So we're really looking for those opportunities to, uh, you know, to benefit both the space work, but equally make sure it's um, has the grassroots in value today for Australian businesses. And what's, what is Queensland specifically doing around its role in developing Australia's broader space agency? Yeah, so um, certainly Australia is you know leaving a lot of the uh, robotics effort um, is being driven heavily out of Queensland. It's not to say that there's there's some great work in the other states, but Queensland's really taking a leading role in its robotics efforts. Um, and then uh, also uh, suborbital payload launch is certainly a capability that uh, Queensland has a couple of companies who, you know, really are um, probably best almost, you know, certainly in Australia, let alone probably compete well in, in a global sense. We're seeing some of the American work uh, for those small payloads launches come to Australia and those are uh, two companies um, that are actually based in Queensland so really exciting. And so where are the opportunities for Queensland businesses? Um, Yeah so as I said I think for Queensland it's really about making that um, connection for be it um, mining companies around our remote asset management um, type works or our remote operating centres, how do they actually benefit from some of the work that's going on in the space program around, you know, actually, you know, re- same thing, remote asset management for the mission to Mars. So with the automation of the, the big trucks in the mining industry, they're running off GPS, are they, the unmanned Yeah, trucks? so the, oh, um, yeah. the unmanned trucks, um, they need uh, – as best as a, what we call a ubiquitous network, so strong connectivity all the time is the way that autonomy, you know, is going to work. And so there's a lot of uh, effort to actually complement their connectivity today through some of satellite, you know, satellite service. And, you know, satellite as a service is becoming a, you know, like platform as a service and, you know, really where technology is going, you know, and where some of the efforts of the space program are really uh, contributing is that ability for Australia to stand up, you know, niche technology businesses that can offer these things as a as a service. And are there many women working in the industry? Um, yeah, so the space, you know, I think the space program has uh, a higher degree of diversity um, than what we see certainly in our in our mining industries today. Is that because it's a newer industry? Yeah, I th- I think it's. Um, I think it's just got a great brand, you know. Um, they they work heavily with STEM and the schools programs um, to create, you know, that that excitement, you know, that I think leads to a greater diversity base. And I think, you know, mining, you know, it certainly does the work in that area, but it, it's got that legacy brand that, you know, uh, doesn't tend to always resonate with with women. And the leaders podcast series, it's focused on two things really. One is to showcase the brilliance of Australians, but also importantly to activate people and ideally collaborations through each of our conversations that we have. What would you like to see come out of this conversation for the robotics and AI industry in Australia? Yeah, I think, you know, where Australia is certainly struggling in areas of most technologies, but certainly robotics is the access to, to capital. Um, 
robotics is a combination of software and hardware and and obviously it's the hardware side that requires you know more capital for these businesses to grow so we have a lot of good small medium enterprises in Australia but they really need uh, a capital injection to actually take them to the next scale and Australia is just not good in this space you know you if you're based in America um, there's a lot better range of uh, venture capital and private equity approaches that actually help companies to to scale up um, and I'd like to see Australia really you know, focus a lot more um, together with the government on how do we actually you know come up with certain styles of you know capital injection uh, for these companies. So bring together industry, the leaders working in it, but then also the financial sector in Australia plus government, but government more as a trellis to provide some sort of framework rather than an impediment. Is that what you had in mind? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, the government uh, does a lot in terms of funding, um, but it's all very, again, fragmented. And so how does the government, and some of these models in America, how does the government use its investment? It puts a substantial amount into startups and into SMEs, but how does it put it into a more, you know, venture capital type fund that then LPs can actually, you know, come into as well and then we can actually get a, a greater bang for our buck out of even our government investment, you know, in these, in these you know, technology companies. So identify where there are the substantial opportunities rather than giving piecemeal bits to people who are just running around in sneakers and shorts and being cool and playing ping pong, which is, it seems, a lot of the entrepreneurial startup sector and to really identify those who are the good and the clever and the intelligent who come with more of a substance and perhaps come as a collaboration of people so that there is a value that can be given, but also to see the return on that investment from government and the private sector. Yeah, that's exactly what we we need to be doing more of. You know, we we have companies that already have proven products. You know, they are out there working in in mining and agriculture, but um, but seem to the, there is just no runway. There's no pathways for them to actually access, you know, access the the larger investments that they require to, to scale out those those businesses. You and I met back in two thousand and nine at what was the original Top Birds, which we didn't really know what it was going to be at that time, but simply it was a lunch where there were eight women who I thought were highly impressive who just needed to know each other. And so at that lunch you had then recently moved up from Melbourne and were looking for a place to put on the BHP initiative, Put Yourself in Her Shoes, to support Opportunity International. And so the firm for which I worked at the time put on the lunch and so over sweet treats, sandwiches and my mum's punch recipe because we couldn't have alcohol. Over three years, we ended up raising $700,000 for Opportunity International with BHP's generous dollar matching. Can you just walk us through what is Opportunity International and what are the benefits that it provides, particularly for women and girls? Yeah, um, Opportunity International, or, or OI, as um, as we all commonly refer to it, is a organisation that it's a microfinance um, not for profit, and it's really about a hand up, not a, a hand out, and. Um, so a handout is where obviously you know some people live in um, uh, really desperate levels of poverty and you know need food and you know those sort of things. What microfinance is more that kind of next level up for people who ha- can sustain their families but need a greater source of um, income through their own business ventures and being supported with their small small enterprises so that they can 
create their own source of income and become self-sustaining for their families. And what I love about OI is, um, you know, 90, I think it's over 95% of the loans go to women in developing countries um, because the correlation is that women who can generate a source of income for the family, they invest it in, you know, their family. They invested in schooling um, so that we generally see, obviously, these, these communities actually be able to, in their own right, lift their way out of poverty. And some of the statistics that I love, and I should confess that we're both ambassadors for Opportunity International, I blame its co-founder, David Bousseau, AM, for my interest in the not-for-profit sector, but that they have, as you say, over 90% of their clients are women, but they've got a repayment rate between 97 and 98% within the term of their loan. So when the GFC hit back in the day, they were terrified because they had such a large exposure to people in developing communities who were who had loans. However, because they had loaned to women, what they actually found was that the women wanted to demonstrate their creditworthiness. So they were repaying larger amounts every instalment and then they end up repaying their loans faster than what they were otherwise required to. So that focus of Opportunity International on benefiting women, particularly so that they do provide not only for themselves, but then for their families and for children. Can you tell us about what Opportunity International is doing more recently around some of their healthcare programs? I think, um, you know, always is recognised that, you know, making a, a family more financially sustainable is, is one element, um, but the level of um, understanding and education around issues of health in developing countries is, is really low. So, you know, there's no point for a family having an income, but then the um, uh, the women not having a good understanding of uh, contraception or feminine hygiene issues. And, and these are things that uh, we take so much for granted, you know, in a, in a country like Australia, you just don't even realise the lack of knowledge, um, you know, and education there. So Opportunity International does a lot of work through its um, its trust banks and, and, and the people on the ground who are helping with the microfinance arm, but equally putting in place, uh, you know, education programs as well as supporting, making sure that people are getting access, women are getting access to, you know, the right health uh, and, you know, be it sanitation, yeah, health training, sanitation products, they do train the trainer program so there's people on the ground who can, you know, continue the education journey and dispel myths. There's a lot of myths in developing countries, you know, around uh, around hygiene and contraception. And Opportunity International's basic structure is so conducive to adding those extra elements around the health training that you mentioned because just taking it right back to the beginning that ordinarily the traditional model is that a modest loan is made to a group of 10 women who then co-guarantee each other's loans. So if someone's a little bit short one week, then the others in that group have to make up for it. But they were finding that was restrictive and so then they have adapted and developed their model so that individual women are taking on larger loans or moreover that they have a loan cycle up so that they may take a modest amount. But as their businesses grow, then they have greater access to larger amounts. But it's that coming together of community amongst women and for them to be able to share experiences that has really formed the basis of what they're doing, particularly in, in India. So Opportunity International Australia supports India and Indonesia, but it just seems so beautifully aligned to be able to get 
information to the women. Can you also speak about what Opportunity has done again more recently in terms of supplementing its model to be able to provide loans for education purposes? Yeah, I think, um, you know, like um, like health, oh, I started to recognise that when people had enough money, they were, they were, you know, trying to send their children from India to America for, you know, for schooling, to access better schooling. And so um, the ability to uh, work with the independent schools, which are a better source of schooling in in countries like India, Opportunity International are helping uh, families bridge that that gap around being able to afford, um, you know, that, that independent schooling, which is a little bit like private school costs um, that we, you know, that people would be familiar with here in Australia. So Opportunity International can help people be able to, they fund that essentially at the, the you know, start of the term and allow people to have payment plans so that they can actually access, you know, the, the better class of schooling where, you know, you know, frankly, actually, the teachers actually turn up, um, which, you know, if, if you don't actually pay for decent schooling, you, you don't potentially have, you know, can guarantee that for your children. And then Opportunity International is also helping uh, fund into the, the independent schools themselves as well to make sure that they, you know, they have the sustainability they require. And it's beautiful to read the stories of the people that Opportunity International has helped. And so I was reading one this morning about a woman who was in dire circumstances without going into the details of it. But now, so she took a small loan and that enabled her to um, make and sell cakes of all things. But she was saying that no matter what time of the day or night, so she might make 100 cakes, 200 cakes a day, and people are just buying her cakes. And now that has enabled her over a number of years to send her daughter to school. And her daughter is now studying to enter medical school and become a doctor herself to be able to serve the community. So it's that knock-on impact that is just so powerful through what a small loan by modest amounts here, $180, $250 is the first layer, can provide to genuinely elevate people and economically empower women. Yeah, they certainly, um, as you said, out of a small loan, you know, and there's, there's just so many examples that you know, I can uh, share with people around families who've been able to start, you know, banana fritter businesses or, you know, so it's a, it's a small capital injection that they're looking at the start, but definitely they return the the income, you know, that comes from those businesses, they certainly school, you know, the next generation and, and you know, that is the best way, you know, knowledge and education are going to lift these countries out of poverty. And they're not susceptible to the loan shark. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, I mean, there's terrible stories around, you know, obviously where families do access, um, you know, some financial contribution and, you know, the the requirements or requests from those loan sharks, you know, if you can't repay, you know, there's been many stories of, you know, about losing your children, um, you know, to the to the loan sharks when you, if you can't, you know, can't repay. So, um, you know. But then heads into the whole human trafficking and what's happening Absolutely. There. So the work of OI is, you know, and, and other microfinance organisations like it is very profound. I was recently looking at the composition of leading Australian public and private companies and it was somewhat dispiriting to see that despite advances and programs that overwhelmingly there's still that disparity that in gender balance on boards and it's also slightly exasperating that, that when women are on boards then they're on committees but the committees are more 
the lighter committees like the HR and the marketing. I acknowledge that in Australia we have some incredible and outstanding male captains of commerce and industry who are just magnificent men. But in business, I also come across so many exceptional and intelligent women who aren't lightweights by any stretch of the imagination, but they're simply not, one, they're not self-promoting and they're not drawing attention to themselves, so they're not having the opportunity to go onto the boards. In the same breath, I acknowledge that there's also a degree of skepticism or a dismissal on the basis of a tokenism where you need to, where people advocate for quotas on boards. And I don't know that that's necessarily the answer. What are your views? Yeah, I think, um, Ellen, there's been quite a, a bit of um, study done on this and, and you know, there's people, you know, for and against quotas, but it's definitely proven in the data that you need quotas until you get to a, a sustaining base um, and be it you're talking about boards or you're talking about, you know, getting women into, you know, through the management ranks in a company and that number's around 20%. Um, so if you're below that, you know, frankly, you need quotas to be able to actually, you know, essentially fire up the engine, um, you know, and once you actually get get past that, then quotas are known to have a, a, a limited effect. And, a, and I guess that's why when you look at l- countries that are leading Scandinavian countries, um, their diversity has been for a very long time outstanding. They certainly did apply quotas in the, um, in the early years, you know, decades ago. And I see Australia, um, you know, certainly BHP has, has applied a lot more quotas of late and I see companies going that way. Um, and that's really so that you do start getting that, that, diversity of thought, you know, and ladder puller-uppers, as you referred to them, the women on man- in the management teams and on the boards who are going to pull other women um, in, into those, those areas. And how can women support other women genuinely in business while managing other people's feelings around the impact on them of hiring or appointing articulate and intelligent women who generally I've found have a very good sense of humour otherwise and are well balanced and they've got a focus on mentoring but it seems that that can create an artificial threat to people or a perception that they're going their own positions are going to be threatened but how can women support women more in business? Yeah I think you know um it's really important that that women um equally you know when they're going forward and, you know, if they're recruiting into their teams or whatever, it's not to say they have to go out and just, you know, recruit women. It's just making sure that, you know, there's a, a diverse, of, you know, 50% of women in your final set of candidates, you know. Um, these are the the type leadership shadow things that women could equally be doing in their, in their roles as well as, you know, making sure that as you – we spoke about earlier sponsoring and networking, um, you know, and providing that mentorship to others that they share their journey. And while they might have, I often see with women that you know the the journey has been hard over the last few decades. It doesn't mean that we need the next generation to experience the same hard journey. You know, I sometimes hear that a little bit from women. Well, you know, I did it tough and, you know, so, you know, that, you know, people need to, to come to the other women. The women need to also do it tough because, look, that's how we, we, you know, we're resilient. We get there and I don't agree with that. You know, it's got to become easier and easier, you know, as the as the years roll on. So we need to be removing those roadblocks um, that, you know, any of us did experience on our journey. Very much so. And given the captain's focus on activating collaborations, how can we showcase brilliant Australian businesswomen 
How can we come together and put them in the spotlight? Yeah, well, one of the, the the things I was, you know, since the pandemic, you know, obviously there's such a uh, opportunity to bring uh, people together across Australia or even globally, um, you know, through through media such as Zoom. So I think it's such a great opportunity for us to actually have some of our, you know, top birds, you know, leadership type forums where we actually bring women together, you know, and invite others who can listen to some of these, you know, um, wonderful leaders that certainly I've experienced in my career who are really happy to share their journey, um, you know, and tips and, and, and network for, you know, for the next generation who are coming through. So bring together a panel of women, several, three or four, five at a time, and how can we then have a link in there so that we're also economically empowering women in developing communities so that we've got that multifaceted. Yeah, I love the um, the ability for us to, to have these sort of calls to action where, as you said, we can benefit our own you know, development of women, you know, uh, in the ranks here in Australia by bringing that wonderful leadership panel together. But those people would be happy to come, you know, and give of their time. But I think we can also tie it together, you know, with the the same approach where we used to do, you know, opportunity international lunches, you know, obviously in a pandemic, uh, we're not doing lunches anymore. So how do we actually have people come through and, and pay a, a small token, you know, $20 to, you know, groups that are doing microfinance and we can do fundraising, you know, essentially through the back of forums like a, a Zoom panel session with some phenomenal leaders here in Australia. Yeah, yeah, bring bring your red wine. <laughs> so let's put some lines in the sand in terms of timing. When yeah, shall I we think have the we should target a sort of October, November, you know, um, time of year heading into yeah, certainly before the Christmas period. <laughs> to the extent where any of us are allowed to have Christmas this year, and what sort of sectors would you like to be represented? Bearing in mind that we can have several so that we've got a cross-pollination of ideas and experiences and a flow of Yeah, I of think um, we should definitely go cross-sector. So we should pull people from, you know, the space, you know, obviously the space area, people from finance, um, you know, certainly, you know, there'd be people who are keen to come from, you know, mining or agriculture and contribute to a, a great panel conversation. Excellent. I will come back to you offline and we'll get all of that cobbled together. and. Then taking it to another level, back in 2014, just prior to B20 and G20, organised the Forum on the Economic Empowerment of Women. So was incredibly honoured to have 13 women and my one token male, Adam from Opportunity International, speak about five themes. So we covered education, maternal health, preventing violence against women, encouraging entrepreneurship, providing access to capital and creating opportunities in the corporate sector. And so we had these brilliant women, one of whom, Amy Lou Winstra, who flew herself in from PNG on a 4 a.m. flight to speak from the International Finance Corporation Division of the World Bank. And it seems even though we've since that forum was held, and I was delighted speaking with Robert Milner, who was effectively the deputy Sherpa for G20, B20. And he said that he tried to get economic empowerment of women on the official agenda, but it was vetoed by Russia. And so he was very welcoming of the report that was written afterwards. But do you think it's time that we had another forum along those lines? Yeah, I think, um, you know, certainly as we um, 
you know, finish finish with this pandemic and everything being, you know, through, uh, you know, through a Zoom type forum, I think, you know, we, we next year should definitely bring, you know, bring people together in a similar type forum. Uh, we should never tire of, of trying to make the wheels of change go faster, you know, around, um, you know, empowering women uh, and creating more equality. I think it, it often is a conversation sometimes people, um, you know, say to me, oh, I'm, I'm tired of and I'm like but the the pace we are going is still glacial um you know so I, I certainly Very don't want to be you know uh, I, I, I it certainly won't change much in my lifetime at the rate we're going so and you know I have two daughters I would like to see you know for their for their generation you know opportunity to be far more abounding for women and certainly when you look in developing countries you know they there's such a long way to go Dr. Shana Glover, you're an absolute leader in so many industries across space, AI, and I'm looking forward to seeing how you impact as you have already, but genuinely into the future for you to create the bow wave for so many other women and men across so many industry sectors. Thank you very much for your time today. Thanks very much for having me, Elena.